We're in the book of Luke, up to chapter 20, starting with verse 20. Oh, by the way, my name is Greg Boyd, if you're visiting for the first time, and I'm the senior pastor here, and I do a lot of the teaching. So this is a teaching time, seminar time uh, of Woodland Hills Church. So we're studying the book of Luke, except when we're not, and now we're up to chapter 20, and uh, starting with verse 20. I'm entitling this, Turning Jesus Over to Caesar. It is a foundational, extremely important aspect of the kingdom, probably the most radical aspect of the kingdom for American folks to grasp, one of the most controversial aspects of the kingdom for American Christians to grasp, and therefore one of the most neglected aspects of the kingdom uh, for American folks. Uh, And so we're going to be getting into this because this is what is in the text. Verse 20 says, keeping a close watch on Jesus, they sent spies, they being the Jewish leaders. The spies pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. Ooh. Remember, the issue of authority has been on the table since verse 1, back when Dwayne uh, preached a message uh, several weeks ago. Uh, starting with verse 1, they approached Jesus and they said, by what authority do you do these things? And they had a little spat over authority. And Jesus silenced them. And then we saw last week, as we continued on chapter 20, that Jesus tells this very in-your-face parable uh, that really was showing the Jewish leaders here that they were having their authority taken from them because they've been persecuting the prophets and killing the prophets and they were about to kill God's own son. And so God was taking that authority away. And now these leaders are in the process of proving Jesus right. They're in the process of revealing the truth that they have no authority, no divine authority. And the evidence of that we'll see here shortly is that they're handing him over to the power and authority of the governor. Not recognizing the divine authority that is in Jesus, they do recognize the authority that's in Caesar, and so they're handing Jesus over to Caesar. And that is, sadly, we'll see here in a little bit, uh, the pattern that goes throughout history. Verse 21, So the spies questioned Jesus, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right. And that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. These pretenders are saying, Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Help us, since you're so smart, help us with this question. Now that was one of the most burning political questions you could ask. The crowd would immediately go silent the minute that question's on the table. This is the kind of thing that they fought a lot about in the first century. And it was really a clever question for these pretenders to ask. Because they knew that however Jesus answers it, he's going to get himself in trouble, or so they thought. If Jesus says yes, well, uh, yes, you should pay taxes, well then uh, uh, he's going to lose a lot of his crowd. Most of his crowd, probably. Because these folks are looking up to to him to be the Messiah, And they have a nationalistic, political, and military conception of the Messiah, as we've said a number of times over the last several months. And therefore, the last thing they think he's going to do is support the Roman government by encouraging people to pay taxes to him. 
by taxes, you support the very regime you're supposed to be overthrowing. So that would be a deal breaker for a lot of the people. But if Jesus says, no, don't pay taxes, well, that's going to get him in trouble too because now these little spies are going to go back to Caesar and the governor are going to go, hey, this guy's teaching people not to pay taxes. Jesus will get arrested and tried for treason and crucified. So what is poor Jesus supposed to do? Well, Jesus is pretty smart. And he finds, as he always does, a way to uh, get out of their little trap. Starting in verse 23, it says, He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, which is just a normal copper coin, first century. Whose image and inscription is on this coin? Of course, all the coins uh, had the, the, the imprint of Caesar. So the people go, well, it's Caesar's. Caesar's image. Jesus said to them, well, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. And stunned by his answer, they became silent. As I said, this whole passage addresses uh, one of the most foundational and radical, controversial, and therefore ignored aspects of the kingdom uh, here in uh, America because it deals with, we'll see here in a moment, the radical difference between trusting government on the one hand and trusting Jesus on the other. It is a message which if you've been here at Woodland Hills Church for any length of time, you've heard us allude to or teach on at some point. So for you, this will be a very important review. For others who are rather new here, or if you're just visiting, this could be completely new, especially if you're sort of used to normal evangelical messages. Uh, And it could, whenever we preach this message, we tend to have people get mad, and I get a lot of emails, and sometimes people walk out, and it gets, they get flustered, and... Uh, it tends to be a kind of a purging time. Someone asked me why I was going to preach this message, and I said, well, you know, the church is just growing too fast and the offering's too high. We've got to do something about that. <laughs> the Gideon principle, you know. But really, I'm, just talk- I'm teaching this because I'm supposed to preach through the Bible, and this is the verse. And so I just ask you, if this is the first time you're hearing this, to hear me out. Uh, and and it, it may be the case, it just may be the case that God has something he'll show you through this that maybe you haven't realized before. So pray with me here for a moment. Holy Spirit, descend on us and descend on anyone listening uh, through podcasts or any other means and open our ears and eyes to hear your word. Give it your authority because only your authority can do what needs to be done here. I pray, Lord God, that you would use this message to purify, intensify our singular allegiance to you. Build your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen, amen. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. This teaching has throughout most of church history and certainly today in this country, that teaching give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God, it's, it's usually used as the proof text to argue that we have a dual allegiance. Uh, We're citizens of heaven, but we're also citizens of earth and whatever country we find ourselves in. We have a dual citizenship and we have a dual allegiance to God and to country, to God and the state. This is the text that's usually appealed to. And as that message is spoken and written about, Uh, uh, This dual allegiance is usually taken to mean not just that we're supposed to obey the laws of the land, 
But I've read books from people who, if I were to mention their name, you would probably recognize them, many of you would. But this dual citizenship, dual allegiance is taken to mean that we have a patriotic duty to be involved in the political process. uh, Leaders uh, have a, a patriotic duty to lie when it's in the interest of their nation to do so. Uh, others have a patriotic duty to serve in the military if their country calls on them to do so. And, and, and the bottom line is we need to balance. And it's difficult. They all emphasize it's difficult to balance. How do you negotiate these two allegiances? And sometimes you've got to compromise. You've got to bend. And it's kind of confusing, balancing these two allegiances. Because we have to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. Now, I want to submit to you this morning that this passage that we're studying means the exact opposite of that. The exact opposite. Here's the background. All Jews believed, in first century, believed, they knew from the, from, from the Bible that we're, people are made in the image of God. We bear Yahweh's image. Genesis 1 t- teaches that. And therefore, he has total rights over us. We, we are owned by him. We bear his image. And all Jews of the first century also believed that it violated the command against graven images for any human being to make an image of themselves. It was idolatrous and arrogant for Caesar to, to, to put his image on these coins. And when you interpret this passage against that broader background, what you realize is that what Jesus is getting at here is this. He holds up the coin to his Jewish audience and, he, and, and, and he's really saying, are we here going to, we Jews, who know that we bear the image of God, are we going to argue about how much of this idolatrous metal we're supposed to keep? Are we going to divide over political issue that's centered on how much of this idolatrous metal we're supposed to keep? If it's God's image, give it all back to him for all I care. If you take that literally, it means that we shouldn't own any kind of money. But Jesus is being sarcastic here because he's pointing out the foolishness of Jews arguing about this issue. And so he's really invalidating the whole question. Are we going to fight over how much of this idolatrous metal to keep? What we ought to be worried about and concerned with, and the only thing we should be interested in, is are we giving to God what bears his image? And that is our whole self. Are we giving to God, giving to God our whole self? And the episode illustrates once again, as so many episodes in the Gospels do, That Jesus didn't come here to settle our political questions, to resolve our political disputes, to give us the right form of earthly government, to tweak Caesar's program, to give us a new and improved political regime. He didn't come here to support anyone's patriotic sentiments or to fulfill anyone's military aspirations. He came, he tells Pilate, to establish a kingdom that is not of this world. Doesn't look anything like the kingdoms of this world. Even the best of the kingdoms of this world, it's completely different than all of them. Because the truth is, folks, that we don't have, despite all the teaching to the contrary, based on the New Testament, we do not have a dual citizenship. We don't have one foot in one world and one foot in the other. At least we're not supposed to. Paul says this in in Philippians chapter 3. He says, but our citizenship, note the singular, our citizenship is in heaven. He doesn't say one of our citizenships is in heaven. No, our citizenship is in heaven. In chapter 1, he says, whatever happens as citizens of heaven, note the singular there. 
live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ because as citizens of heaven, we're to be ambassadors of heaven and to be putting on display the glory of heaven, the, 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 the different way of living that characterizes the kingdom that is coming. And so live in a way that's worthy of that as ambassadors to a different country. But our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is the kingdom of God. Peter takes it even further when he says, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. To be a foreigner is the opposite of being a citizen. It gives us the status of illegal immigrants, if you will. We're, we're, we're aliens in this land, in this period of time, whatever country you may live in. And in 1 Peter 2, he takes it even further than that. He says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Now, an exile is someone who used to be a citizen but got kicked out. So as foreigners and exiles, then live in a way that where you abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Now, legally, you are an American or those who are listening through other means. We've got a couple thousand people outside of America listening. You belong legally to whatever country that you were born in or, or wherever you're residing. Fine and wonderful. But we're to know that our true citizenship is in heaven and we've only got one of them. The truth is that we are foreigners and exiles in this country or any other country you may be living in and we're to think that way and we're to live that way. We're to be odd ducks. We're to be weirdos. We're not to blend in too well. We're not to fit in too well because this is not our land. We're not to get too invested in anything that's going on here in the land. We're foreigners and exiles. We march to a different drummer because we've got a different lord, a different master, a different kingdom, a different land whose citizenship we, we, we carry with us. We're not citizens here, not really, not from God's perspective. And because we're not citizens here, we're not to have our allegiance with any of the power here. We don't have dual allegiances uh, because we don't have a dual citizenship. We're not to have divided allegiances between God and country or God and government or God and state or God and anything else. We're to have a singular allegiance because we have a singular citizenship. The allegiance is to God and the citizenship is the kingdom of God. To make Jesus Christ Lord means you make him Lord over everything and if Jesus Christ is Lord over everything, that means he's in competition with no one and no thing. No competitors. That's what it mean, means to make him Lord. That's why Jesus said as clear as anyone could ever say, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. That's it. Say it together. No one can serve two masters. You cannot do it. You may think you can do it, but one of them ultimately ends up winning out over the other. The way Paul puts it is, is like this, 1 Corinthians 8. He says, there are many gods and there are many lords, yet for us, us kingdom people, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. We live for one God, one master. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. There are many gods, Paul admits, and people follow those gods all over the place. But for us who are in the kingdom, under the reign of the one true God, there's only one God. We don't divide our loyalty between different gods. I'm hoping you're not doing that. You know, here's Yahweh's time, but now let's give a little time for Zeus and, and, and Gaia and whatever other god you might want to be worshiping. No, to, to make God your one God means he's your only God. So also there are many lords here on this earth, many, many, many competing claims. But if you're a kingdom person, you've got one lord, singular. 
So you don't divide your time between Jesus as Lord and then, then some other earthly ruler as Lord. You've got one God and you've got one Lord. People follow a lot of different lords. In Iran, many people follow Ahmadinejad. I had to practice that name so much to get it right. In China, it's Zhu Jintao. In North Korea, many people follow, Jing, most people follow Kim Jong-il. In Cuba, it's Raul Castro. In England, it's Queen Elizabeth, I suppose. In America, many people follow Barack Obama. But if you belong to the kingdom of God, you've only got one Lord. You've only got one ruler. You've only got one master. You've only got one real president. You've only got one real king. You've only got one allegiance, one hope, one aspiration, and one whose example you follow. And he is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. His name is Jesus Christ. Amen. And he is to be in competition with no one, no thing. One ruler. Now that doesn't mean we go and flaunt our liberty and the laws of the land and go around breaking laws because we only have one, one authority and that is God. Three times the New Testament tells us to submit to government. Submit to the laws of the land. Whatever country we happen to be in. But it's not because government has any intrinsic authority over us. Because we've only got one who has authority over us. It's not because we think government is so smart and so moral and so kind and true and so wise. No, 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 no Jew in the first century thought that way about the Roman government, and yet Paul tells Jews to submit to them because God tells them to submit to them. There's three things we're supposed to do vis-a-vis the, the government. We're to obey the laws, we are to pay our taxes, and we're to pray for peace, pray for our leaders. But it's not because they have any intrinsic authority. It's not because they deserve it or they're smart enough and good enough, and by golly, we like them. It's because the one master in our life tells us to do that. And the main reason he tells us to do that is that it's not worth causing problems over. It's just not significant enough to go breaking those laws. And now you're going to invite trouble in on your life, which is going to interfere with the one thing you're supposed to be doing, and that is building the kingdom. You can think of it like this. Here's the paradigm. In the dual allegiance model, you've got God over here and government over here. And we have allegiance to both of them. And it's tough because you just, mm, oh, how, how do I do this? You, know, you, you have to, you're living in two worlds, two different authorities. In the New Testament model, what you've got is one ultimate authority, and that is God. But government is under God, and God tells you to submit to government. So you submit to government, not because it's smart, but for God's sake. You see, the only authority government has is the authority that God gives it to us by telling us to submit to it. But it doesn't have that authority intrinsically. We're not under any human being. We're under God. But then God tells us to be under these other human beings. In fact, there's other areas we're supposed to submit to. And uh, uh, all of those we do for God's sake. So you find in the New Testament that we're all supposed to be submitted to a, a broader community. Uh, we're to, uh, kids are to be submitted to their parents. Uh, Christians are to be submitted to their pastors. Spouses are to be submitted to one another, Ephesians 5, 21. Uh, employers are, 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 are to be submitted to our employer. And yes, we're to be submitted to government. But it's not because any of these areas... Are, are we've judged to be worthy of this. No, the ball's out of our court. It's not because we think they're smart and good and kind and true and wonderful and whatever. No, no, we do it because God tells us to do it. This is why if there's a law in the land that contradicts uh, the command of the kingdom, the call of the kingdom to live out of Jesus' lifestyle, followers of Jesus have got to break it. 
Because the only reason we're following the government in the first place is because he tells us to. So if there's a law that, that we can't follow without compromising our kingdom call, well then we have to break that law. This is what happened with Peter and John. They're all preaching the gospels and the authorities cracked down on them and they said, we don't allow you to do this. They were breaking the law. And then Peter and John said this, well, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judges. What do you think? What do you think? But as for us, however you answer that question, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We've got to obey God. Now you do what you got to do. You got to put us in prison, put us in prison. You got to beat us, beat us. You're going to kill us, then kill us. But we're not going to stop doing what we're supposed to do because this is what God calls us to do. And the only reason we listen to you anyways is because God tells us to listen to you, but in this case you're contradicting God, so God wins, you lose. Sometimes you got to break the law. There is a place in the kingdom for civil disobedience. If there's a law that tells me I've got to kill somebody else because a government official tells me that they're an enemy of the state, I feel I have to break that law out of fidelity to Christ because Jesus tells me to never retaliate. Jesus tells me to love my enemies, do good to my enemies, bless my enemies, serve my enemies, so i got to break that law. And if there's another law, as there was on the books until just a little while ago, a law that tells me that I have to act in a way in accordance with a law that privileges white people over people of color, I have to, out of fidelity, break that law. Because I'm called to manifest a kingdom Jesus died for where there's one new humanity and a kingdom in which all the walls have been torn down and all the hierarchical structures of privilege have been abolished. And I've got to manifest that law and I can't do that without breaking this earthly law. That's why the civil rights movement really was a kingdom movement. Insofar as the laws are consistent with living out the kingdom, we have to obey them. But insofar as they're not, we have to disobey them. You may think the laws are stupid, but that's not grounds for breaking them. I think a lot of our laws are stupid, honestly. Uh, some of them, I, I wonder, what were people thinking when these laws were passed? It must have been a committee that put that together. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's always the committee that puts it together. So some of the laws are stupid, but I don't have the right to say, oh, that, I'm not going to obey that law because I'm not obeying the laws because I think they're smart. So I can't disobey the laws because I think they're dumb. I obey the law because God, my one Lord and authority, tells me to obey the law. It's arrogant and non-kingdom of me to violate the law just because I don't think government deserves my taxes or I don't think this law should be obeyed. Now, this is so important. And here's why. Let's go back to verse 20. It says that these leaders hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. Refusing to submit to Christ as Lord, they hand Jesus over to the government, to the realm of Caesar. And now government will decide. See, they recognize the, the authority of, of, of the government. And now they give to government the right to decide the identity of Jesus. Who is this guy? And the fate of Jesus. What should we do with this guy? Of course, in this case, it all backfires on them because this was all part of the providential plan. But it doesn't at all minimize the evil of what these folks were doing. And the point we've got to get from this whole episode is this. To the extent, Lord, give us ears to hear. To the extent that our trust is in government as Lord, we are not trusting Christ 
as our one and only Lord. Why? Because you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve two masters. This much, this much is even clear in the Old Testament. When God first created human beings, no one was lording over anybody else. When God created human beings, the plan was for him to be Lord over us, and we get to Lord over the animals. We're to take care of the animal kingdom, and we're to take care of the earth, but no one is ruling anyone else. It's only after the fall, and it happens immediately after the fall, that you find people starting to get the upper hand over other people, and they start ruling and controlling other people. It's a sign of our rebellion against God. We, we, we control other people based on our superior intelligence or our killing skills or whatever other talent we might have. But that was not God's original plan. And when God called Israel, he wanted to start to re-educate humanity on his desire to be our only king. And so for the first several hundred years, Israel didn't have an earthly king. Why? Because God was to be their king. The trouble is, is that a lot of people had trouble trusting that. How do we, we got to trust God when there's all these other physical threatening nations around us. We feel a lot more secure if we could just look to a leader, look to a king with a, with a mighty army, and we could trust in that king and that mighty army to fight for us. Uh, it would take a whole lot less faith to do that. And so they started to clamor for a king and a military. And so there came a point when they came to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, and it says, the people said, we want a king over us. We, then we will be like all the other nations. What a noble aspiration. God wanted them to be different than the other nations. But now they want to just blend right in as though they were citizens here. We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go up before us and fight our battles. Samuel was grieved and went back to the Lord. And the Lord said this. Listen, this is so important. It is not you that they've rejected, but they have rejected me as king. Why? Because they're putting their trust in an earthly king. Put your trust in an earthly king is to reject God as king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. You cannot serve two masters. When you're relying and trusting in the authority of an earthly king, to that degree you are not trusting in God as your one and true king. And if the scripture isn't enough to prove it to us, history ought to be enough to prove it to us. You cannot serve two masters. History shows, church history shows that whenever Christians had divided their loyalties, God and country, two allegiances, dual citizenship, whenever Christians have done that, invariably we end up handing Jesus over to the government and allowing government, the power of Caesar, to define the Jesus that we end up believing in. You cannot serve two masters. Now, for the first three centuries, it wasn't like this. For the first three centuries, Christians were a persecuted minority, and, and they did it right. They paid their taxes. They obeyed the laws of the land. They prayed for the leaders like the New Testament tells them to. But these early Christians would never pledge their allegiance to Caesar or the state. These early Christians would never call Caesar Lord, even with a little L, and even though they knew they didn't have to mean it, they wouldn't do it because it compromised their singular allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord. They refused to hate Rome's national enemies out of fidelity to Christ who tells us to love our enemies. Instead, they would pray for their national enemies and when the opportunity presented itself, they would serve their national enemies and that outraged everyone else in the empire. 
They would never engage in or support in any way the national violence of Rome. They wouldn't celebrate Rome's victories. They wouldn't celebrate their military holidays. They acted like foreigners and exiles in the land because they knew that they were foreigners and exiles in the land. And that meant all the regular citizens looked at them as subversives, as traitors, as unpatriotic, as ungrateful, and as cowardly. And for that reason, for the first three centuries of church history, they were ostracized. The early Christians were persecuted, killed in vicious and barbaric ways, which was really wonderful because as people watched these Christians being put to death, as ambassadors of a different kingdom, they saw the beauty. Those who had hearts to see and eyes to see saw the beauty of a different kind of a kingdom, the beauty of a different kind of a Lord, the beauty of a different kind of allegiance. And some of them said, yes, I want that, even though it will probably cost me my life. I, I think that that's true. And so the, the Christian faith spread incredibly for the first three centuries, precisely because the Christians were being put to death. That's why Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And then, in the fourth century, the worst thing imaginable happened, and that was Christianity became popular. There's an emperor named Constantine who had a vision, allegedly, and uh, the vision combined Christ with military violence, first time that had ever happened. And he thought this vision was from God, and tragically, uh, some early church leaders agreed with him. And so immediately, Christianity was legalized, and the emperor started favoring Christianity and throw, throwing all sorts of goodies their way. And, and, and very quickly, it became the official religion of the Roman Empire. And no sooner did that happen than Christians began to act like citizens. They stopped acting like foreigners and exiles. They began to act like normal pagan Roman citizens. The year after Christianity was made the official religion of the Roman Empire, Christians put their first pagan to death, and so it goes, and so it goes. And ever since, I mean, there's always been a strand of people who live in a Jesus countercultural way of life, but the institutional religion of Christendom, the church militant and triumphant, that thing, on the whole, that institution handed Jesus over to the state. Christianity was co-opted by government. Christians ended up serving the state violently if necessary and doing so in Jesus' name. And the beauty of the Jesus-looking kingdom was largely lost. In his marvelous book, Subversion of Christianity, Jacques Ollol, one of my favorite authors, he, he shows how there's always been a strand of, of, of kingdom people who lived in the way of Jesus regardless of what empire they lived in. But on the whole, the religion of Christendom uh, reduced the church, the institutional church, more often than not, reduced the church to being a cheerleader for whatever form of government it happened to find itself in. This isn't a uniquely American phenomenon that's been going on throughout history. He says this, subversion of Christianity. He goes, Christianity, he's referring to the religion of Christianity here, imbibes cultures like a sponge. Dominated by Greco-Roman culture, it became territorial and feudal. It then became bourgeois, urban, and argentiferous, which just means laden with metal, occupied with money, with a capitalistic system such as we found in America here. It is now becoming socialist with the diffusion of socialism. Listen to this. Each generation thinks it has finally discovered the truth, the key, the essential nub of Christianity by veneering itself with the dominant influence or modeling itself on it. 
Christianity, the religion of Christianity, has always been as elastic with cultures as with political regimes. Monarchist under the monarchy. Republican under the republic. Socialist under communism. Democratic under America. Everything grows. In this regard, listen to this statement. Christianity, the religion of Christianity, is the opposite of what we are shown by the revelation of God in Jesus Christ the one who said, my kingdom is not of this world, the one who said, you cannot serve two masters. Reality is that serving two masters, Christians have often handed Jesus over to the state. And when that happens, the real Jesus gets crucified. What I mean by that is the real Jesus gets abolished and he's replaced by a pseudo-Jesus, a Jesus who's a cheerleader for whatever form of government you happen to be under and therefore, of course, agree with. Jesus is reduced to being a cheerleader of feudalism or cheerleader of socialism or cheerleader of totalitarianism or cheerleader of the monarchy or the cheerleader of the republic or cheerleader of communism or the cheerleader of democracy and capitalism or cheerleader of Nazi socialism because a third of the German churches did just that, supporting Hitler. It's always hard for the fish to recognize the water they swim in. This is, by the way, why church history is such a bloody mess. I mean that literally. Diabolically bloody. Because when Jesus becomes a cheerleader for a particular nation or cheerleader for a particular form of government or cheerleader for a particular political party, then when that government or that nation or that political party goes to war, as they invariably do, well, then the Christians who are aligned, who have their allegiance with that nation or that government or that political party, they go to war too. And they fight just as viciously, viciously as everybody else, but they do it in Jesus' name because Jesus is the cheerleader which makes it the most demonic thing you can imagine. That's why Christianity has been so bloody. If you, the craziest thing is that after the 14th century, and actually sometime, some, to some extent before then, it was often Christians killing other Christians in the name of their nation and doing it in Jesus' name. What's wrong with this picture? Christians slaughtering other Christians. But feeling that since they've got the right nation and the right government and the right party, uh, that God likes, well, then you're worth killing despite the fact that you make Jesus Christ your Lord just as I do. What's wrong with this picture? And if you think that's too ludicrous to be true, consider the fact that we here in America celebrate one group of Christians overpowering another group of Christians every 4th of July. And in a lot of churches, that's considered a distinctly Christian holiday. In fact, every 4th of July, we invariably have Some people who are checking the church out leave because we don't celebrate the 4th of July as a Christian holiday. In fact, in the newly published American Patriots Bible, which I've reviewed on my blog and reviewed uh, in several other venues, and I'll go ahead and tip my hand hand that the reviews weren't necessarily positive. Uh, It's it's really quite an, an amazing work, and I don't mean that in a positive way. But in, this, in, this, in the Patriots Bible, they say there, they hold up the 4th of July as the second most sacred holiday on the Christian calendar, second only to Christmas. I mean, I would have thought Easter would have bumped it down to three, but no. It, it, it. And the reason is, and I'm not kidding here, they quote Quincy Adam. What's really crazy is they base this on some verse in the Bible, because everything's got to be based on a verse. It's, it's insane. But they quote Quincy Adam. Uh, and, the, and the reason why this is the second most sacred holiday is because America, folks, is the fulfillment of that for which Jesus died. 
All the prophecies about what Jesus came to do are fulfilled in America. Absolutely unbelievable. And so you celebrate the independence of America when our Christian soldiers slaughtered more of their Christian soldiers than they slaughtered of ours. And, and we hold that up as a distinctly Christian holiday. Now, folks, I'm happy. I'm, I mean, I, I, those people that listen to England might get mad at that. But, but I'm glad America isn't British, and they're probably glad they're not American. Uh, you know, but yay, go America. That, that's wonderful. I, that, that's fine. But there's nothing distinctly Christian about Christians killing Christians. I don't care what the reason is. You can't hold that up as some kind of a Christian holiday. Like God was involved in our becoming independent, breaking from the queen and, and whatnot. That's nuts. It's ludicrous. But it's what happens when you stop adhering to Jesus' teaching that you cannot serve two masters. Serving two masters, we have frequently handed Jesus over to the power and authority to Caesar power and authority of Caesar, and we say, you define him, and you tell us who he is. And we, we obediently go along. And Jesus becomes a national cheerleader. Folks, here's the bottom line. We here in America, and those who are listening outside of America, apply it to your own country, however it fits. But we here in America live in a, this is the water that the fish swim in, which is why it's so hard for us to see, which is why people get angry whenever we talk about that. I guarantee you there are some non-Americans listening to this right now who are saying, well, what's the big deal? Duh. But see, we are enculturated in a different way. We have a long tradition of serving two masters, a long tradition of fusing the gospel uh, uh, of the kingdom with the gospel of America. We have a long tradition of trying to do this balance, dual allegiance, dual citizenship, God and country, God and state, and so on and so on. We have a long tradition where we have handed over the real Jesus for the Jesus of the culture. A long tradition, therefore, of the church being reduced to playing the cheerleader role for America and for our wars and for our political system and for our economy. Long tradition. I mean, it's an, it's an amazing thing when you look at it historically. Because you don't read a word about political freedom or democracy or capitalism in the Bible. You don't find a word about democracy or capitalism or political freedom in all of church history up until the last several hundred years. And when the idea began to be discussed, the main ones who were against political freedom and against capitalism were the Christians. Now fast forward to 200 years and here we are in this country. And I, I suspect the majority of American Christians think that political freedom, democracy, and capitalism are, are very close to being the essence of Christianity, worth killing and dying for, for sure, and doing so in Jesus' name. To spread those things is to spread the gospel. The idea, it just reflects what Alal said in his book, Subversion of Christianity. To quote it once again, many American Christians believe that we finally have discovered the truth. Oh, it wasn't in the Bible and it wasn't in church history, but we finally have discovered the truth, the key, the essential nub of Christianity. Democracy, political freedom, capitalism. What we've really done is just got a veneer, a veneer of Christianity made after the dominant influence that we're modeling. Just as Christians did under feudalism, under socialism, communism, monarchy, Nazism, in the same way we, to a large degree in America, instinctively hand over Jesus to the state. And now... Jesus is redefined according to political power. And so what we end up with is this. We trade the real Jesus in, the real Jesus, whose kingdom is not of this world, the real Jesus who died for his enemies and taught us to do the same. We trade in the real Jesus for a pro-American Jesus, a pro-democracy Jesus, a pro-capitalist Jesus, and we're supposed to carry the pom-poms and go yay. Uh, folks, it's time to say enough is enough. 
to wake up to the water that we're swimming in. We cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve two masters. You can go ahead and love America and believe it's the best country in all of history, fine, but never forget, never forget that you're a foreigner and an exile. Uh, your real citizenship isn't here. Don't get too comfortable. Don't blend in too much. Your real citizenship is in the kingdom of God. Your real citizenship is in heaven. And you can prefer the Republican Party, or you can prefer the Democratic Party, or you can prefer the Greenpeace Party, or you can prefer the Socialist Party, you can prefer the Libertarian Party. I don't care. But never forget that your one allegiance is not to any political party or political system. Your one allegiance has got to be to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the President of all Presidents, Jesus Christ. Make Him your only allegiance. Because, folks, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, America and all other nations and democracy and all other political systems and Democrats and Republicans and all other political parties and the presidency and all other political offices, they're all fading away and come to nothing but the kingdom of God and our Lord Jesus Christ reigns forever and ever and ever and ever. Put all your eggs, all your eggs in that basket. He is to have our one allegiance, singular allegiance. Never divide your loyalties. Never compromise your loyalty to the one and the only one who is truly Lord, to the one and only one who is deserving of our all. Give to God what belongs to God, and that is your whole self. Put all your eggs in that basket. I'm going to close with a prayer, and I want to ask the prayer team to come forward as I pray. Now remember, this is a seminar. This is not church. This is a seminar about being the church. And so we have assignments, as you always do on seminars. And so out of the hub, you'll find... See, I, I couldn't apply this in practical ways. This was like a paradigmatic message. Uh, but there's some definite practical applications. And so you'll find some tips on how to do that uh, back at the hub. Uh, and so pick up that, that little piece of information. I encourage you to practice that throughout the re- week. If you have any need whatsoever that you'd like to pray for, come forward and our prayer team would be glad to pray with you. Uh, and, and, and work through whatever issue that you might have with you. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we pray, God, you purify our heart as we sang about earlier. Turn our heart, open our heart, rend our heart up to you. Purify our singular devotion to you. You alone have authority over us. You are alone are our Lord. You are alone. You alone are our master. We submit all to you, and we ask, God, that you purge from our life everything else that tries to compete with that everything else that tries to compete with that. Build your kingdom in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. Go out and build the true kingdom. Thanks for tuning into this message from Woodland Hills. We hope you enjoyed it. You can download more sermon resources, including study guides and our entire sermon archive on our website at whchurch.org. You can also discuss the sermons and connect with other members of the Woodland Hills body on the bridge at bridge.whchurch.org.